welcome to hey great shot this is the great shot podcast a crack rackets and tennis channel podcast network production my name is alex gruskin It's pretty easy to break the tennis schedule down into thirds. You've got the opening hardcourt portion of the year. That, of course, starts with the summertime in Australia, the Australian Open. You then run into the Sunshine Swing. You've got Indian Wells. You've got Miami. Yes, there's a South American clay court portion of the year thrown in there, but the heavy clay court part of the season doesn't start until after that Miami Open. Of course, after that Miami Open, you've got the natural surface swing. You've got three months of clay court events followed by that quick month of grass court tennis. After that, we get back into the hard courts, right? The North American hard court swing officially upon us. Events we didn't get to see last year, such as the City Open, such as Atlanta, such as the Rogers Cup. They're all going to be back in our lives. Of course, we're going to get to see the Western and Southern Open in front of a full Cincinnati crowd this year. That is something we are particularly excited for here at Crack Rackets as we will likely be in attendance at that event. But of course, with all of that said, two-thirds of the season in the books, now feels like a perfect time to reset, to take a look back at the lessons we've learned from the first two-thirds of the season and how we can apply those lessons to the home stretch of 2021. That's why we are super excited here at The Great Shot Podcast, have a fantastic slate of guests lined up to help have those conversations, talk about the players we should be watching most closely during the hardcourt summer. Also talk about, again, the lessons we've learned through the first two-thirds of the seasons. Who are the breakthrough players? What do the analytics say? How do those analytics differ from what we're seeing unfold with our eyes? Again, a fantastic slate of guests for all of you listeners. A really, really fun set of conversations we look forward to unfolding over the next couple of weeks. And those conversations start here on today's podcast as I am joined by friend of the show, an extended member of our Tennis Channel family here on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. It is editorial producer over at Tennis.com and for Tennis Magazine. David Kane joins me to not only talk about the latest developments regarding the Olympics. There have been so many withdrawals, and of course, for one player in particular, Novak Djokovic, one of the big names remaining in the event on the men's side. That gold medal is the only thing missing from his mantle. He's tied the Grand Slam record. He obviously has, though, the opportunity to make additional history, become the first man since Rod Laver to win all four slams in the same calendar year. Balancing those pressures, filling out the mantle, getting that gold medal versus chasing history, winning that U.S. Open, because they are two goals that are somewhat in conflict. So wanted to talk to David about that. And then we do a really fun exercise. We named the five WTA players we are are watching most closely heading into the summer hard courts. I will say there were two names we overlapped on, but this podcast got so enjoyable we ended up dividing it into two parts. Again, you know, I think it was like an hour and a half long, but rather than throw that all at you at once, we're going to divide it in two on this podcast. You're going to hear our conversations, I believe, about Sabalenka. You're going to hear us talk about Sonia Kennan. You're also going to hear us talk about Elena Rabakina. It is a fantastic podcast. I know all of you listeners are going 
going to enjoy. Of course, before we get to that conversation, I want to quickly remind all of you that the reason we are able to do all of this day in, day out here on the Great Shot Podcast is because of the support we get from all of you listeners, from our Crack Rackets Patreon family, and of course, because of the support we get from our friends at Turn of Tennis. I've got another indie tennis league story for all of you listeners today. Played another match, and you know, last week I played the number one player in the ladder. I will say proudly, I defeated him. I thought I was going to move up to number one this week. That was not the case. They still had me at number three, which was a bit disappointing. And so the fact that I got a shot at the new number one this week, I was amped up for it. But again, it's summertime months. Hot, humid, I schwitz a lot. In order to prepare myself best for the match, what did I do? I brought out my role of turn of tennis scripts, and this time well in advance. I didn't want to have to ask my opponent again. I was able to re-grip my rackets with turna. I was delivered a 6-1-6-2 victory because of those turna grips. Again, I could feel my racket the entire time. I didn't have to worry about slippage. I was comfortably gripping the serve, forehands, able to put two hands on the backhand without any worry. If turna tennis grips can withstand my sweat, they really must be the best in the business. And you listeners already know they're the only grips that get tackier when you sweat. Their performance in hot and humid conditions unmatched. And of course, they are beautifully lined in that iconic trademarked blue color. If you would like to join the Turner Tennis family today, you can contact them by emailing sales at uniquesports.com or calling 800-554-3707. You mentioned we here at Cracked Racket sent you the hook you up with free samples, hook you up with discounted college pricing as well. Most importantly, they'll treat you like family, which is all we can ever ask. We are so grateful for their continued support. The least we can do, ask you to support them as well. Email sales at uniquesports.com or contact 800-554-3707 to become a member of the Turner Tennis family today. But again, this is part one of a two-part podcast talking a little Olympics and then naming our five most interesting WTA players to watch during the hardcourt summer with our friend from Tennis.com and Tennis Magazine, David Kane. With all of that said, Westoff, let's get to the podcast. Let's rock and roll. Who's your trusted source when it comes to your facility questions, concerns, and needs? Ours is Hard True, the world's largest manufacturer of tennis court surfaces, equipment, and accessories for over 90 years. Partner with their trusted team of experts, along with collegiate greats Jamie Loeb, Alex Rybakov, and Dustin Taylor to bring the service provider of over 30 professional events annually to your facility. Whether it's the red clay of the Houston ATP, the green clay courts of the Charleston WTA, or the official hard court of World Team Tennis, Hard True has you covered. If you're looking to build a court, convert a hard court to clay, or simply resurface your hard court, work together with Hard True in their mission to lead the tennis industry by creating better places to play. To learn more about their state-of-the-art surfaces, along with their catalog customizable on-court accessories, check out hardtrue.com or call 877-442-7878 today. That's hardtrue.com or 877-442-7878 today. (laughs) 
Joining us now on the podcast, a man who is fully ensconced in all things happening at Tennis Channel. And you know him as an editorial producer for Tennis Channel, for Tennis.com, his work for Tennis Magazine. I know him as a returning champion here on our Crack Racket shows. It's our friend David Kane. David, welcome back. How are you doing, my friend? Alex, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is my pleasure. And again, you use the word ensconced in our warm of eyes like that is why he is the editorial producer, folks. You were on top of all things Wimbledon. So many good stories. Tough to plug any individual piece, but I know you are the king of the Vesnina beat. Was it worthwhile back at Wimbledon? You had at least a plethora of content to work with. I have to say this is the first tournament that I've that's in a while that Vesnina's not been at that has gone uncovered by me, at least from an editorial perspective. But the Tennis.com team has been very warm and welcoming of my resolute coverage of the Olympic, the reigning Olympic doubles champion, um, but was very happy to see her capitalize on a solid single straw and then do as well as she did in doubles. I'm looking forward to seeing what she can do in her Olympic title defense. Absolutely. And we got some news today as we're recording this. Roger Federer pulls out of the Olympics. This was not a planned tangent. But since I have you here, we have just seen so many players, it feels like, repeatedly drop out of this Olympic Games. I saw a tweet floating around. The last time Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal weren't in the Olympics, Andre Agassi was your champion of the Olympic Games, just for some perspective for everyone. I think that was, what, 2000, I want to say, right around then. So, you know, I was a ripe age of five. Uh, That was solid. (laughs) Uh, You know, I remember that well. But um, just your thoughts in general, this Olympic event, because, you know, for for me personally, when I think the Olympic Games, I grew up in the Andy Murray era. To see him win the 2012 Olympic Games, go on to win the U.S. Open, it made the Olympic Games feel that much more important. And then, of course, 2016, not only do you have Monica Pui capturing the title, which was a historic moment for her home country, but you also have Novak Djokovic brought to tears by Juan Martin Del Potro and his run to that Olympic final, and Murray ultimately capturing back-to-back golds. For people who grew up, you know, watching tennis in the 2010s, the Olympic Games have meant something. Feels like this year, I don't want to say it's a reversion back to normalcy because I feel like they normally do mean something, but this year it feels like there's just a lesser importance. Is that fair? On one hand, yes. You're seeing a lot of men's players in particular grappling with the decision of whether to prioritize the Olympics or to prioritize the rest of the season, especially with the lack of points and I think prize money on the line at the Olympic Games on one hand. On the other hand, since Rio, we have seen a lot of players take concerted efforts to skip these major tournaments. You've seen Federer, Djokovic, Fabrinka all take lengthy absences. Nadal is in the midst of his own sabbatical between Wimbledon and the Olympics. I think at this in this and I think in that sense, the Olympics is just as important as any other major tournament. And I think everything means a lot to all of these players. And unfortunately, I think the Olympics is a victim of scheduling being the third really big tournament in a very short period of time. There was only a short break between Roland Garros and Wimbledon. So I think in that sense, it might be getting a bit short shrift, but I don't, I don't see the same debate that maybe you were seeing at the, maybe at the end of the nineties, beginning of the two thousands when people were really seemingly not turning their nose up, but really wanting to prioritize the U S open over the Olympics. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think that's completely fair. And, you know, again, in particular, you look at the men's side because there's the pursuit for Novak Djokovic, the only thing missing from his mantle at this point in Olympic gold medal. Now, you also have excellent hair. You've also been known to 
work an extreme diet or two into your system. I don't know if that's true or not. But the point being, I'm going to ask you to turn on your Novak Djokovic brain. And you're Djokovic. You're assuming his shoes. You know all of the regulations in place, how difficult it's going to be. You know the history you have on the line. You can become the first guy since Labor in 69 to win all four slams in the calendar year. Are you playing the Olympics? You skipping the event. Part of me as a fan hopes he skips it because then I think we keep him till 2024 because he is maniacal enough to keep pursuing tennis until he gets that last accomplishment. But David Novak Djokovic Kane, what are you doing? I think if Novak had not won any of the preceding three majors up before, up until the Olympics, there would be a question he'd absolutely be coming to Tokyo. I think what happens now for him is that he's in a very precarious situation where he, on one hand, he's going for what he probably believes is his destiny, which is to be an Olympic champion. And on the other hand, could he, you know, complete history by making this calendar year grand slam? Does he want to go back to a place that has been a source of tremendous heartache for him? We, we heard stories of him, you know, sawing his rackets in half in London, taking a tough loss. Uh, in 2016 to Juan Martín del Potro that was part of a sort of longer derailment of his career that saw him really struggling for the uh, the next 18 or so months before he really got back on track in a major way at the end of 2018. Um, I think he puts himself at a tremendous amount of emotional risk by going to the Olympics because if he does have that big Olympic adjective, disappointment at the Olympics now, I think it might potentially really put him in a dangerous situation coming to the US Open where he's not feeling that same confidence and he feels rattled. I think if you're going for history as a tennis player, ultimately that is a situation where maybe the US Open is more important than the Olympics, but he's one of the few people who can claim that. I think anyone, Monica Puig among them, would count a, an Olympic gold just as proudly as any of the four major titles, if not greater. No, it's it's fascinating. And, you know, he's the exception, right? He is not the rule. You look at a guy like Hubi Hercots, who's coming off of a Wimbledon semifinal, who earned his first Masters 1000 title, who, and I, there was a heart put up on the Zoom feed by David. I would have done it myself if I knew how to use my hands while talking. Um, but I agree with you. It's, it's easy to fall in love with Hubi. And I think in his home country, he's starting to experience that love with the success that he has had. And so I know, talking to people in the Hoobie camp, he is amped for these Olympics, the opportunity to represent his home country. You're not going to see a Polish player with, or, you know, he's probably got as good of an odds to medal as any Polish athlete in the games. And uh, that may be incorrect, I suppose, my knowledge of some of the, anyways, the point being, you can understand why a guy like Hubi at this point of his career, he's got many, many, many U.S. Open still to play. Uh, so him going to play the Olympics, you can understand that decision. On the flip side for Djokovic, it is such a thin line. Because it's, do I get, because 2024, four years from now, or three years from now, we don't know what Djokovic is going to look like. And it's safe to say he's as close to the peak of his performance as he will be in this four-year span. And it's the one thing missing from his mantle. And you don't have a Medvedev at number one in the world with slams under his belt, or a Tsitsipas, or a Zverev, or any of them like that right now. You are the guy to beat. So this is, if you want to be the favorite at the Olympics, this is the one. And it's just, it's tough. At the same time, the calendar slam at age 34, are you kidding me? Like, it's its a good, it's a good you know, uh, I suppose, uh, what, what's the term I'm looking for? I'm trying to match your vocabulary and I'm, I'm lacking here. But it's a good choice to have, right? That's the, it's the, it's good conundrum to be in. But it's definitely a conundrum. 
<laughs> conundrum was not the word I was looking for, by the way. I was, I was, uh, it was the, the, you know, when you've got the two choice. Anyways, you, you yeah, know, it's what a I'm good saying. problem to have. I mean, yeah. you're in a situation where you know back where you saw him get tight in the final against Berrettini, and we've seen Serena on the brink of history conferring tight. I think you know, had there, you know, that had that point at 15:30 in the fourth set go another way for Berrettini, maybe we would have seen a very dramatic fifth set. Maybe we would have seen Djokovic really bubble over with nerves and tension with all this history on the line, just at the thought of getting three slams in a row, which is something that none of the other big three, big four guys can claim in, in recent years. So I think that that's, you take that pressure, you add the Olympics onto it as, as soft quote unquote, as the draw might be for him. It's a gamble. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And again, it is something we look forward to the Olympics, I suppose, the next big event on the calendar. But of course, beyond that, it's, it's crazy to think we were wondering what is this calendar going to look like? How much tennis are we going to get in the midst of a week? We're recording this with three WTA events, three ATP events, four challengers. Tennis is back. The calendar is full. And it's crazy to think, but we're at the home stretch. We have hit the hard court summer here in the 2021 schedule. And, you know, with that in mind, the exercise I wanted to do with you today is to talk about some of the WTA players we should be watching most closely. That was a very funny bicep curl by the way, on exercise. I noticed it. I noticed it. But uh, hopefully people in the car did that as well. But, um, you know, before we get into that, the plan tangent I had for you uh, is to talk about what we're seeing unfold at a bigger picture level on the WTA Tour right now. And, you know, I ended up doing some research in the build-up to this uh, project impromptu. It's why I showed up a bit late to this recording. I went back and looked at the rankings over the past six years. The reason I did six, I wanted to do five, but you had to throw 2020 out the window. And so, you know, take it what you will. I went back to the start dates of all of uh, the seasons, looked at the rankings, compared them to now. And I wanted to see how the number of players 25 and under has shifted over the last five years because a common refrain you'll hear one I have made repeatedly on these podcasts is that we see a generational shift unfolding in front of our eyes on the WTA Tour. I believe after this weekend we're now up to 13 first-time winners on the WTA Tour this year. It's something crazy like that. I think it's definitely a double-digit number and you look uh, you know beyond that uh, we've had 12 different semifinalists through the first uh, three slams of the year. The only other time, or the last time that was matched was 2019 when it happened again. And so we keep seeing these players, It's whether it's young players, whether it's veterans, work making to their first quarterfinals of their career at the slams. It's just, you know, different people, different weeks. It's whoever gets hot. There is a parody we're seeing unfold. And I'm curious if that parody is a byproduct of the generational shift Now, what was so interesting is when I looked back at the rankings, on average, you look larger picture, top 100. Over the past five years, there have been about 44 players age 25 or under in the top 100. Right now, that number's at 42. So it's really not that big of an outlier. You know, again, that that's right on the course. Where the numbers start to get more extreme is when you look at the top of the rankings. On average, there have been 21 top 50 players, 25 or under. Right now, there are 24. In the top 20, there have been 8.5 on average. Right now, there are 11. In the top 10, there have been 4 on average. Right now, there are 6. So I guess my question to you, is the generational shift, David, mo- more pronounced at the top? And that's why we're feeling it? Or is there just, in general, a broader generational shift occurring? 
there's a lot of things at play. I mean, first of all, when you look at the top 10 as compared to 2019, it's a lot of the same names, mm -hmm. uh, give or take, and Igor Strontek, and a lot of that has to do with sort of the way the, pan the pandemic protocol ranking rules have allowed a lot of players to remain in the top 10, despite maybe some stumbles um, through the start of the season. I mean, to see, you know, Andreescu and Kennan returning to the top five on the back of Simona Halep not playing Wimbledon and losing all those champions points. You know, it was an interesting Wimbledon and Roland Garros for that matter, but certainly Wimbledon based on how the French panned out to preview. Um, because looking at the top 10, other than an Ash Barty, and even Ash Barty was coming into Wimbledon under a bit of an injury cloud. It was hard to really look at any of the top 10 as tremendously serious contenders to win the title, which is a shame given the fact that at the end of 2019, you were looking at your Osaka's, your Andreescu's, your Spitalina's who'd made back-to-back -back Grand Slam semifinals, Pliskova who made the semifinal in Australia in 2019. All of these players seemed ripe to win and continue to win. And Naomi managed to do that at the start of 2021. But, um, yeah, the top 10, I you know, it's 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 slim pickings right now. I mean, one of the really good um, positive developments out of the end of Wimbledon was getting to see Arena Sabalenka and Karolina Pliskova both do really well because had it not been for that, I think the top 10 narrative coming out of um, Wimbledon would have been an interesting one. Yes, Ash Barty is number one with a bullet, but in a field that is in many ways compromised. No, I, I, all of those are fair points. It's funny now that you say these things. There's a million different ways I want to go. We have a Caroline Wozniacki belt here at Cracked Rackets. It's the heir apparent, the player who doesn't have a slam that's next in line to win one because, you know, for so long she was the player chasing it, number one in the world 2010, and then doesn't win a slam until 2018. It felt like Sabalenka had wrestled that belt away from Pliskova heading into Wimbledon. It was like, she is now the one we're all waiting for. And, you know, Goff's looming. Certainly, Madison Keys had a cup of coffee with that title 2017-2018 range. But now Pliskova's right back up there, right? You're absolutely right. And it just does feel like there is an open window because we haven't seen a player solidify themselves at the top of the WTA rankings. And, you know, one of the other things coming out of this 2021 Wimbledon is, has Ashley Barty done that? Is she now the standard setter, the person everyone else is chasing? And you look at the numbers, she's 35-6 and six now in, in this 2021 season, 85% win percentage, four titles, five finals, 10 total events. She's made eight quarterfinals. She was the favorite entering the French Open. Just injuries slowed her down. Like, again... It's funny because I went back, I looked at her numbers compared to like a prime Venus season or that prime five-year stretch for Venus, which what's so amazing about Venus is she had like five different primes. But in her prime, she was winning about 85% of her matches. She was making finals at about 50% of her tournaments. She was winning about 40% of them. That's what Ashley Barty's doing right now. And yet it doesn't feel like there's a dominant presence. And so... I don't know. That was a lot there. I know I threw a lot of different things at you, but no. again, your thoughts, it, it, because it is as much a byproduct of there is no dominant number one. Osaka's the favorite at every hardcore event she's healthy entering, but like outside of that, everything else, perhaps outside of Barty, is unknown. I mean, Venus is an interesting comparison because when you think of when Venus was at her peak, in many ways, when Venus was at her peak, peak, she wasn't even able to be number one because you were dealing with the consistency of a Lindsay Davenport, of a Martina Hingis, of a Monica Sellis. I mean, of a Serena Williams. The upside of an Annan as well, like those sorts yeah, of players. Annan, yeah. Kleisters. I mean, that is 
not the field right now. I mean, it, it was shaping up to be that field at the end of 2019. I really thought Bianca Andreescu in particular, along with Osaka, were going to be tremendous threats. And even, you know, coming back in Miami, the way she played through the final before, of course, she got injured. You know, I thought that Andreescu was really going to be that heir apparent rival. And in her absence, it's actually been Sabalenka, which has, again, been in its own way very heartening. But, um, you know, looking at Ash Barty, who is not tremendously intimidating to look mm -hmm. at you think surely she is not the best of this field and she obviously comes on the court with many weapons that and, and a lot of consistency and, and certainly now coming out of Wimbledon with a lot of confidence um but to compare her, what she has had to do to amass Venus level stats you know I still the data is still out and I think that's going to be tough you know reassessing this generation in 10 years hopefully we do have a lot more data by then but it's going to be interesting to see how we all reconcile this 2019 through 2021 interregnum that we were already in that got exacerbated and in many ways completely exploded by the pandemic. Absolutely. And that's the thing with Barty in particular, perhaps more than anyone. She was clearly starting her prime at the end of that 2019 season. She makes semi, you know, she's made the fourth round or later at every Grand Slam since the 2018 U.S. Open except for this year's French Open where she withdraws with injury. And she wins her first Grand Slam title in 2019. She's number one in the world. Certainly, that wasn't her ceiling, but she was clearly on the ascent towards that ceiling at the end of 2019. Semi-finals, 2020 Australian Open. And then, you know, the rest of her season's robbed. And because Barty is a player who excels across surfaces, it feels like she can make a deep run at every slam. And just by virtue of there being four, perhaps she would have taken another one in 2020 and just further solidified herself in that number one ranking. But again, during that 97 to 02 or 98 to 02 prime, which is what I have as the prime years for Venus, she averaged about 14 top 10 wins a year. Right now, Barty's at seven. You look for Venus Williams during that stretch. She won four majors during her best five years in singles. If I told you over the next we'll say three seasons because we'll say 2019, this one, and the next three. Barty wins four total majors. That feels about right. Like, that's a good number for me. She wins two more over the next three years. Like, I could very much see that in play. Absolutely. I mean, mm -hmm. again, given the field. I mean, like, you talk about seven top ten wins. I mean, I, the one that immediately jumps to my head is the one where um, – Andreescu retired at <laughs> the final. I mean, and then, yeah. you know, playing Sabalenka um, in, I know in Miami, she was having some issues with her rib towards the end of that match. Barty really ran away with it. I think won the last 12 or 14 points. You know, Sabalenka had big leads uh, in, had a big lead in Stuttgart that Barty snuck away with. I think we're, again, we're seeing this field coalesce behind her. And then again, I, yeah, I mean, certainly two slams given the field and given where she is and how she holds up physically certainly doable in the yeah. next two to three years no absolutely and so again it speaks to where we're at right now there is no dominant force there is no uh prohibited and again the the last piece i suppose i would add is that you look at players like halep and kvitova and pliskova they're all born in the 1990s like they're at oldest turning 31 this year that's not that old. There's still a lot of good tennis left to be played. If you watch the Middle East swing, you know Petra Kvitova can still hear that hit that top gear. And, you know, Simona Halep was excellent last season before she ran into the Sviantec buzzsaw at the French Open and then just hasn't been healthy here in 2021. Then we just saw what Pliskova did and what Kerber just did. And 
So all of these players still in the mix, it leads to a fascinating, wide-open summer hardcore schedule. And that brings us to today's exercise. I asked you, David, to name five players that you are most interested in seeing. I came up with my list of five as well. Now, there were some rules that will inevitably be broken, but the initial framework, pick one player from the top 10, Pick two players ranked in that 11 through 30 range. Pick one player 21 or under, and then one wild card you've got your eye on for whatever reason that may be. Now, we've talked about a couple of players already, but I'm curious, David. Let's start with the top 10 player. Who is the name? And I actually think of all of the categories, I suppose there's only 10 names, so this is the one mathematically we're most likely to overlap on. But I think this is the one we may overlap on. Who's the top 10 player you're watching most closely? Oh, Arena Sabalenka. <laughs> so it's so fascinating, and I know this about you, um, that you are part of the Sabalenka fan club myself. I like to think I'm one of the co-founders. It's me, you, and Jeff Sackman. And I'll give, Have I given you the Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club lecture before? No. Uh, I don't, I don't <laughs> yeah. know if you want to hear it. So I call it because it started out with a tangent. I'm, I apologize, listeners. It started out with a tangent where what is the thing Serena does differently than everyone? It's her serve. Her serve's the best mm-hmm. in the history of women's tennis. And for a while, it wasn't particularly close. And then we saw Osaka do what she did at the U.S. Open and followed it up at the Australian Open. And I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe – there's two members in this country club, and maybe it's just a gear that only the two of them can hit. But then I was like, no, that's too exclusive. So it broadened into the Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. They've got that level of power tennis where it doesn't matter what you're doing. They can hit you off the court if they play their best. And Serena, obviously, president of the club. Osaka's got yeah. a very finely situated house right on the first green. It's beautiful right next to the clubhouse, whatever it may be. Kavitova comfortable property owner in Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. Yelena Ostapenko, corner house that some Halloweens, she goes all in. Other Halloweens, it's straight basket on the front door. Take as much candy until it runs out. And then, you know, we've sent invitations to Rabakina. We're, no, we're just like a scouting report. We were like, hey, and Jeff's idea is that there's actually a, a hidden safe in the country club, like President's Suite, and no one's unlocked it yet. And when you do, it'll just be a picture of Sabalenka. And I was like, "Congratulations, Jeff! You're inducted onto the member uh, onto the board with me." A, would you like a seat on the board? B, make the case for Sabalenka because she belongs in that power tennis country club. When she plays her best, it's just better than anyone. Yeah, I mean, I think we talk about you know how we view the game is very often impacted by the tennis we grew up with. I mean, you read anything that Joel Drucker has written, you see just the the history impacted in in every sentence. So for me, growing up watching tennis in the early mid-2000s, you saw the power tennis, the big swings, and it is very reminiscent to me of that kind of tennis that I grew up watching and was comfortably used to seeing make Grand Slam finals and succeed. So especially in that summer of 2018 when she had those back-to-back runs in Canada and Cincinnati and then had that epic match against Osaka in the fourth round, just this classic power tennis, a match that very easily could have been the de facto final the way both of them were playing. Um, the big thing that was missing for Sabalenka was that mental edge in major cha- major championships. And it got to a point where, as you may know, there have been a ton of Zoom press conferences. Arena Sabalenka has been at many of them in the last year or so through her runs in Linz, Ostrava, um, and all the tournaments that she's been at over the last year. And it got to a point where you run out of things to ask these players because there's just this big major narrative stumbling block that has been in her way 
and she got very close in Australia to breaking it, had a really tough match against Serena, had a tough one in Paris against Pavlyuchenkova, who obviously went on to make the final. And then finally at Wimbledon, she was so emotional. It was just such a tremendous weight off her shoulders to beat Rybakina. And you saw her play very well against Shaver in the quarters, you know, not falling for any of the sort of um, the gimmicks that the Tunisian can really throw at you and, and played as good as she could have played in the semifinals against Pliskova was not a nervy match by any stretch of the imagination, just a few points here or there that really um, clinched it for Pliskova. So I think with that box ticked in her corner, I would hope to see a more unlocked Sabalenka playing on hard courts, a surface that she can really dominate. And hopefully you could see it all come together at the U.S. Open. At those Sabalenka press conferences, it's you, me, Courtney, Michael Dickens, and the guy who goes, oh, many congratulations. You know, at the set, you know the guy I'm talking about. It's a, it's a country club all its own. Yeah, I, and, I, yeah exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, I, the good news for me is at this point because, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. I just think there's a gear Sabalenka hit. She's going to play 20 minutes in every match where you're just like, whoa. You're just like, that is – that best player in the world right there that's what it looks like because it's not just the power tennis sneaky good feel uh, obviously her and elisa mertens grand slam doubles champion she's comfortable moving forward and sometimes she'll play a drop shot when it's 30 40 3 2 the critical juncture of the match and you're like come on like again but then she'll do it when uh, in another moment when she's on one of those runs where she wins 14 consecutive points and you know the number I keep turning to is for Arena Sabalenka 51 and 16 in her last 52 which is just about a 77% win percentage but most impressively in those 16 losses 14 of them were three set losses David so even when she loses you're still going to see that 20 minute run where she's just like no 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 it's time for me to kill you now and she yeah. can hit the gear where she does kill you and, like, that first set against Pliskova, case in point, she got her one break, she ran away with the set. Like, that is sometimes all it takes for her. And you could see the relief on her shoulders more than anything. Like, there was just, again, it felt like she dropped 10 pounds of pressure after she reached that quarterfinal and knocked off her Bakina in three sets. And, by the way, that was a real, that was the perfect matchup for her because the power tennis of her Bakina kept things really simple. Play first strike. If you don't, you're probably going to lose the point. And so, again, that helped. But then, as you mentioned, the you put it kindly. I'll say the garbage, and I say that affectionately. The garbage the that junk. Jabor— Yeah, the junk. That's There it is. Um, the junk that Jabor can throw at you— Sabalenka had no problems with it, and it helped that they had played a couple of times over the past 52 weeks, but it it was, you know, again, that was, that's what a number two seed does in the quarterfinals of a Grand Slam, and that Pliskova match was such thin margins, and it was was just really quality tennis, and, you know, again, it feels like Sabalenka, as good as she is now, she's still got another level to hit, so I agree with you, and I did a podcast going into last year's U.S. Open with... I'll call it with Ben Rothenberg, um, who is not on those press conferences. Um, but And, you know, I named Sabalenka one of my most interesting players entering the tournament for the same reason, you, all the reasons you mentioned. It's just the upside is so evident. And to see her go on this run, what is it, four titles and five finals this year? And, you know, again, she, over the last 52 weeks since the tour resumed, she is the WTA wins leader with, I think, now these 51. It's just, she's hitting all the check marks. And she's still only 23. I think that's the craziest part of all. She's been such a part of the ecosystem for so long, yet only 23 years old. I agree. I'm locked in. Can she win the U.S. Open? I think absolutely. Definitely. I mean, I think that's why when you 
talk about Barty, it's why I'm a bit reticent to really go hard because we saw her in Madrid get the racket taken out of her hand and they were both fit and they're both playing well and Sabalenka just turned that gear and that was on clay I and mean, we've seen Sabalenka now play well on clay play well on grass those were two big question marks we hadn't really seen her have an actual clay and grass attempt because of the pandemic I mean again this is these are the statistics that we're really grappling with that lack of um a continuity between 2019 before a breakthrough post breakthrough in 2020 I mean it's the same thing for Osaka which is why on a side note, I was really not buying that much into the narrative that Osaka couldn't play on clay just because she hadn't really had many attempts at the surface. And so that's a story for another day. But anyway, for <laughs> Sabalenka, at least, you know, you would hope that she takes the semifinal run and just runs with it. Yeah, I 100% would echo that sentiment. Hopefully we see her play her best tennis. She is playing the Olympics, correct? Yes, and playing doubles, I believe, with Azarenka. Feels so a little murray and it feels yeah. like a medal there, too, could spur some confidence going into these big summer yeah. events. And a confident Arena Sabalenka might be the most dangerous player right now in the women's game. But I'm going to go the exact opposite route. You mentioned all of the players that were in the mix uh, at the end of the 2019 season. One player whose name you, uh, not intentionally, but one player you didn't mention who certainly took the tour by storm at the start of 2020 and throughout the 2020 season was Sonia Kennan, who's the first player in my top 10 player I want to mention because the advanced metrics right now, David, are not kind to Sonia Kennan. These come from our friends at Tennis Abstract. I call them advanced metrics to spruce them up. They're really just ELO ratings. You look at her overall ELO right now. Sonia Kennan, again, for those listeners who don't know, ELO measures who you play, not what round and when you play, like the WTA rankings do. Sonia Kennan right now, number 31 in overall ELO, number 74 based on her 2021 results. Now, of course, she's currently ranked number four in the world. But if I ask you, David, what number has she played closer to? Four, 31, or 74? It's not four. Like, let's just be clear. That's not the level of late. And you look for her in her last 52. She's 20 and 14 overall. You look here in 2021, she's 11 and 10. And of course, injuries have been a product. It's undeniable uh, that, you know, whether it's injuries stopping her rhythm here at the start of this season, whether it's the coaching changes she's made, there have just been a lot of changes surrounding Sonia Kennan this year. And that's why I'm so fascinated to watch her play because there's that. And then there's, to the point you made about Barty, Kennan's a jack-of-all-trades. She can do a little bit of everything. At the same time, respectfully, and she doesn't want the invitation, but she's not going to be a Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club member. That's not her game style. And you just see the power and the athleticism of some of these young players, the Sapolankas, the Shviantecs, the Andrescus, even the Rabakinas. Like On their best days, it feels like they take the racket out of Kennan's hands. And yet... When I go back and watch that 2020 Australian Open, when I go back and watch the French Open, her creativity, there's, she is the outlier. She is the game style that is different right now from everyone else. And there is always the place for an outliner. And that's why I'm just fascinated to see if she can gain some confidence this summer on a surface she knows well. Obviously, she had her Grand Slam success in Australia. I'm locked in on Kennan. I'm curious what you think about her this summer. I I sense I mean, apprehension. I, think, I mean, I think it all comes down to the team. I mean, we're seeing her not go to the Olympics because she doesn't feel like she has the team around her that she wants to take to the Olympics. And that's 
that's pretty, you know, it's pretty telling heading into the next couple of weeks where she really is evidently made this switch. I don't want to say under duress, but seemingly under duress because for her not to have a backup plan feels like this was a decision that was made in some, some amount of haste because mm-hmm. it wasn't working out to start the season. She didn't play well. And now she is something a bit adrift and it's, it's really tough. You saw how much pressure she was under getting ready to defend that title. She talked about it nonstop in Australia before she got to that second round in Melbourne. It just, the lights were flashing like early exit and it just hasn't been the same. I mean, on, on the same, on the same token, I felt ambivalent about her chances heading into Paris last fall and she ended up making the final. She's the type of player that has not, um, a considerable amount of power, but in many ways, easy power because of the technique and the way she's able to generate pace or absorb and redirect pace, I should say. She was able to take out a Barty and Muguruza in back-to-back matches in Australia to win. That was in its own way very impressive. But looking into the next couple of weeks, it seems like the things that are holding her back have not been addressed. And if if they have not been addressed, I don't see things changing monumentally for her in the next couple of months. I like to make clubs just to help make sense of things. I have the top 15 club, top two. Yeah, it's actually, I really just love the Bill Hader SNL segment, uh, the skit they do. And so the hottest club right now is the top 15 club via Tennis Abstract. Uh, yeah. That was funny. Um, yeah, that, it's again players who are top fifteen in both hold percentage and break percentage. Usually, if you're a top fifteen server and returner, you're probably a top ten, top five overall player. The four players in that category right now: Sabalenka, Sviantek, Muguruza, Jabour. That feels right, right? Like uh, if I tell that if I tell you that's your top fifteen, that feels right. When I extend that out to the top twenty club players, who are again top twenty in both of those categories, you get the addition of players like Sakari, uh, like Mertens, and you get uh, uh, Ashley Barty as well. If you go top twenty five, then you get Krechikova, Bedosa, Vika, Kontave, Svitolina, Alexandrova, Brady. Those are about your, like, 12 names that matter. Those are the 12 names that, again, and, you know, there are a few missing. Naomi Osaka, who's the number one server, so I think you can get away with things when you're the number one server. Coco Goff, who if I made a top 31 club, she would be in it because it's, you know, she's right on the fringes for both. The problem for Sonia Kennan... For someone who can do all of these things really well, she fits the profile right of a Sakari, of a Mertens, where to see she's not top 15 in any individual thing, that's fine, but you would expect her to be top 20, top 25 in both. She's currently 35th in hold percentage, 36, uh, 32nd in break percentage amongst top 50 players. Like, that's fine. That's fine, but that's all that is. You need something to make life a little bit easier for you, and whether it's your fitness, whether it's your confidence, whether it's just some sort of external factor, that's what helps you get over the hump when you're someone who doesn't have that big weapon. And again, early in 2020, and I honestly think throughout the 2019 season, I compare... I, the two players that were very similar to me were Berrettini and Kennan in the way they went through 2019. Just success across each surface, a couple of big outlying breakthrough runs. For Kennan was the win over Serena at the French. For Berrettini was the semifinal at the U.S. Open at the end. Kennan's breakthrough obviously came a little bit sooner. She wins the 2020 Australian Open. And with those expectations, you're right, have come changes surrounding her. But it's the game that's most concerning to me because I guess my question to you is, is the game struggling because of the off-court stuff? Would that be your assessment? Yes. 
Okay. <laughs> it's fair. <laughs> I mean, I just, I, I, there was reason to feel hope in Paris based on the way she outlasted Oscar exactly. Pinko. That, that was um, the one that just yeah. made no sense to me because I was like, where did that win come from? You looked excellent. Yeah, it just, but and then, and then even playing Pagula, that seemed like a really great, great win for her. But then just not closing against, not being able to really put up any resistance against Sakari, having tr- trouble on grass. I mean, it's just, she's has a lot of emotions and she's still very young and she's you know she'll in many ways she'll, she will forever be six years old because of those videos of her and kim <laughs> Kleisters. and i feel like in many ways she's younger even than she is because she has been as part of this very um talk about ensconced family unit you know and i think yeah. that it, there's some growing up to do and not because she's like immature in like a bratty sort of way, but just needs to kind of, you know, take control of her career and have the right people around her. And that hasn't happened yet. Yeah. All fair points. I, would I hope agree. it does. Yeah. Again, the tennis, she it's can really do a little cool. bit of everything. There have never been concerns about Sonia Kennan's tennis dating back to when she was, you know, her Bellis. That was the race. Two of the best American juniors you'll see yeah. in the 21st century. And both of them get out to, you know, race out to success on the WTA tour. And, you know, random fact, uh, I believe it's, uh, is it Elena Gabriela Russa who won this weekend, right? I may have butchered the pronunciation yes. there, but... Random fact, I was looking up for a podcast segment and I was like, oh, she's 23 years old, whatever. I was like, oh, still really young. Like, this is a really good point in her career. And then I was like, wait, she's born in 97. I was like, I think Belinda Bencic was born in 1997. And it's like Belinda Bencic is actually like five months older than Rus. And I was like, oh, man, Belinda Bencic is still super, super young. Um, But that's – and I watched Rusa. The reason why I looked it up is because like their game's kind of similar, big forehand backswing. That's a – Rusa is not one of my players on my list and neither is Bencic for the record, although she was a just missed the list. She was an honorable mention. But um, no, I I agree again for Kennan. This is a surface we've seen her have success on or on the North American uh, court. Certainly, she will have the opportunity to get some training in between uh, the end of Wimbledon and the start of the series hardcore event. So it will be interesting to see how she plays, but enough on Sonia Kennan. Player number two, I'm going to open up the categories. Wherever you want to go next, David, who is another player you are watching most closely this summer on the WTA Tour? Oh, I'll go right down to top 20 or 11 through 30 just because i'm in order sure. <laughs> i'm in a i'm in that sort of headspace but it's speaking of sabalenka who had that great win over rabakina rabakina is my choice because overlap i knew it was yeah. going to happen somewhere i completely agree let's talk about her i'm going to admit a lot of my picks are a little similar it's a very unique or very consistent game style across the board i think for a lot of my picks just because i am invested in that sort of style you have a type there's nothing wrong with that i think it's but i also think it's the kind of tennis that makes sense to a lot of people i think it's when you talk about selling the sport i mean like big big serving big ground strokes makes sense to people i mean when you start having to break down backhand slices and change ups and trick shots like i think people start to feel like well where is the there there and i think that's maybe where you maybe where you start to lose people but other people are really entertained by that sort of stuff i don't know but um at least for rebakina we talk about someone who was so severely derailed by the pandemic won 20 matches in two months at the start of 2020 i have stats um <laughs> multiple and title multiple finals <laughs> and just did not replicate that form at all post pandemic and through the start of the beginning the start of 2021 has really gotten back online at Roland Garros, really tough quarterfinal against doubles partner Pavlyuchenkova, another really close one against Sabalenka. You think as 
placid and calm as she is on court with that easy, easy power. I'm a little surprised she didn't win both of those matches, and she certainly had her opportunities to do so. Um, but looking ahead to the hard court season, she's one who can really clock the ball and loves the surface and is sort of in pole position to make a really deep run at at least a couple of these tournaments heading into the U.S. Open. Yeah. Um, to uh, supplement your stats, I would add on that she's currently number 13 in hold percentage amongst top 50 players, but you look beyond that, her first serve win percentage ranks sixth. Her ace percentage ranks eighth. Her first serve is an elite weapon, and I, I think where she lacks is that first serve make percentage, which is still too frequently under the 60% threshold. But yeah, she plays power tennis again. The, the board met, and we extended an invitation to you to join the board. We'll see if you have any more free time. But uh, we we said, hey, Elena, you can come golf here and meals on weekends. It's on us. Like, we're scouting you as a future member because I, I, it's a little thing, but her reach and extension – and you may have even tweeted this, and I, I think I hit it with a like. Or maybe it was – I don't remember. But forehand out wide return for Rabakina when she connects with that ball down the line. It's stunning. You're just like, that's a winner. You're like, yep, yeah, she can go down the line. She can do it cross court as well. And, you know, she's 40th in break percentage amongst top 50 players, which isn't good. But that speaks to her aggressive nature, her game style. And we saw when she got hot at the start of 2020, she makes a final. She then wins a title. And I think it was a third round loss to Barty, I want to say, at the Australian Open in 2019. Hold seed, I know, at a minimum. Or in 2020, she held seed. But... Yeah, I, I agree with you. Hard courts are certainly her best surface, and what she lacked at the beginning of this year was confidence, and now she has it. You know, she, her and Jabour are on the list. There's a couple others who made the round of 16. I think her, Jabour, Bedosa, there were six players who made the round of 16 of both Wimbledon and Roland Garros. She was one of them. And yeah, that again, it, it's that she can take the racket out of the hand. I'm going to be using that so frequently now, but it, that's the thing. It's like she can do that, right, David? that and i think in many ways she's sort of the anti-satalanka i mean yeah. the aim is the <laughs> exactly. same but the execution as i wrote about fortunes.com is very different i mean you talk everything about satalanka's game looks a little complicated i mean the serve motion is huge the back swings are big everything about ribakina is compact and easy and so like you would think that again like you said like she's feeling confident all of those things should help her connect um much more consistently and again on a neutral surface seems like sky's the limit Stoic demeanor as well. You would have no like when she got angry at the chair umpire over a couple of calls uh, in the Sabalenka match. It, yeah, it was and it was kind of enjoy like in a good way. You're like, okay, good. Like, no, she she wants this match. Like, she is locked in. And again, don't confuse stoicism for passivity or a lack of caring. And, uh, you know, sometimes you may concern that there is no, there is a fire to Rabakina. Obviously, there's a fire power to her as well. But she's a killer. And she goes for the kill. She goes for the throat. Sometimes it, you know, bites her in the derriere. But that's a quality you need to have to succeed at the top of uh, tennis. And it's funny. The metrics, she's 20th in overall ELO, 20th in 2021 ELO, ranked 20th on the WTA. Like, we all agree. 2020-20. I would say she's a top 20 player right now, but again, she's still super, super young as well. Elena Rabakina, I believe, and I don't want to get this incorrect, I want to say she's, what, 22? Like, just turned 22 or something like that, and so, um, you know, nice. A thumbs up with the approval. That's why, again, senior editorial of content, but um, senior editor. Anyways, um, 
yeah, it's uh, I. She's on the list. I, I agree with you. She's absolutely someone, and she is playing the Olympics, correct? I believe so. Yeah. I'm assuming most of the women, most of the top women, are, with very few exceptions. I you know what just... team I would not want to play in mixed is her and Bublik. I'd be like, get me away. From, that is firepower. Like we're, I'd be like, we're playing two back. Like I'm I sorry, mean, but we just are. It. Yeah, I mean, if you want to see a rebuck and a meltdown, it might be a, a sign of, like, maybe not taking the mixed match super seriously. I think it might be an overlap of it in its own way. Or, or, a, yeah. know, or it's the exact opposite, and he evokes this creativity out of her, and he, like, teaches her the nuance of the underhand serve, and she throws that into the mix, and then it's over. Everyone's just f***ed. It's just like, what do we do now? Nothing. There's nothing we can do. And so, uh, again, no, that will be super Hope all of you enjoyed part one of my conversation with David Kane. Again, part two going to be coming out on tomorrow's Great Shot podcast, so be on the lookout for that. We talk additional names to watch out for on the WTA Tour. I'll give you all a sneak peek. We're talking a little Marta Kostyuk, a little Anna Konya, some Jennifer Brady, and so much more. Again, if you enjoyed this podcast, I promise you're going to enjoy part two as well, so be on the lookout for that on the Great Shot podcast feed, and be on the lookout for all of our our content, of course, which you can find on our website, crackrackets.com. You need a more immediate update. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. We are at Crack Rackets. You want to message me directly? I am at Great Shot Pod. A shout out, as always, to our super producers, Max Fleigner and Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job they do day in, day out. Shout out as well to our friends over at Turner Tennis. Remember, contact sales at uniquesports.com or call 800 554 3707 to become a member of the Turner family today. Again, a huge thing. Thank you to our friend David Kane for taking the time to chat with us. And, you know, if you're not already, I promise if you're listening to this podcast, you're likely reading everything David Kane has done. But if you're not, you really should. It will make you a more informed tennis fan. Again, you can find all of his work, tennis.com, tennis magazine on Twitter, David Kane. Uh, but with that said, for my wonderful guest today, David Kane, our super producers, Fliegner and Westoff, our friends at Turn to Tennis, and from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. Hey, great shot, and we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.